In diplomacy, you can say the nastiest things in the nicest way, but they say a diplomat also must always think twice before saying nothing. However, those are for political level diplomacy. Today, we also have a diplomat, but he represents something even more important than just politics. Well, at least on the topic of sport, uh, sports, geez. <laughs> um, let's welcome the one and only F1 diplomat. How are you, diplomat? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I appreciate the introduction. <laughs> well, a diplomat is a diplomat, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit more on the security side, but I, I have always studied, you know, uh, national security and diplomacy and stuff. So that's where the name kind of stuck. But uh, I thought my intro was right. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's perfect. We'll, we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, the first question, as typical as it can be, the first things first. As usual, we are going back to the kindergarten with these questions, to be honest. Um, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, myself, you know, the speeches we've been giving. <laughs> yeah, so um, like on my Twitter bio and many people that know me on F1 Twitter, I'm not very popular, but the people that do know me... Um, so outside of Twitter and F1, uh, I work in the security field, uh, focusing on like physical executive protection, threat, and you know other other levels of security um, that affect kind of people, logistics, and things like that. Um, and I've always loved the F1. I think the I've had a hobby for it. I really got back into it, and it might surprise some people, but I got back into it honestly with drive to survive i was on a project and i needed a show to watch while i was traveling and i watched it and it reignited kind of my my desire to follow a season fully before that i would kind of watch a race or two every now and then um my dad really got me into f1 he used to love senna and you know unfortunately after senna passed away uh, my father couldn't watch F1 anymore. He just didn't really, you know, have a passion for it. But he would always talk to me about F1. So that's a little bit about how I got into F1 um, and a little bit about what explains my name. So I have really a passion for understanding logistics, understanding how people kind of talk and ultimately bringing a level-headed um, sort of viewpoint to the table. You know, I know that sometimes on F1 Twitter, things can get very hot one way or another. So I try to kind of bring everybody together um, and, and we all can discuss in a, in a friendly way. Diplomacy it is. <laughs> yes. <All right. laughs> um, so from Nigel Mansell, I'm straight away going for the second question. Um, from Nigel Mansell's 360 spin to a stop on 2020 tire puncher, the Emilia Romana track has some great dramatic track records, to be honest. And this time, we even had the gloomy weather and rain to spice it up. Well, the results were <laughs> not something we ever expected, to be honest. So, from a fan's uh, perspective, what do you think of the Imola track um, overall? Yeah, I think this race that we saw was entertaining in its own way. I know that there's been some controversy with kind of the sprint race and all that stuff, but 
most importantly, I think uh, I love to see a classic track like Imola, you know, back on the race calendar. And it came back a few years ago. I think that's really good for the sport. I do think that, you know, these current regulations and the size of the cars might be just maybe holding off on the potential that we can see more on-track excitement than we currently see. Um, and, you know, it, the track, again, it's it's pretty historic for the, for, for the craziness that happened and the tragedies that have happened there as well. So it's good to see, a, you know, like I said, a, good to see a classic track on the circuit. But I, I do have, uh, it, it still has to grow on me a little bit with the current size of the cars. All right. So I'm going to get back to another question with, well, let me see. Um, since you have the security side, I'm going to ask a relevant question <laughs> with that. So um, this season is on a very tight schedule with double, triple headers, and they need to get a replacement faster to the cancelled Russian GP as well. And all these can wreck havoc even with a small, tiny bit of time delay. Haas had an issue with delayed frights and, well, Melbourne didn't have much of an upgrade, maybe due to the similar situations with bringing all those all the way there and then getting all those back to Italy could cause issues maybe, uh, even with the timings and with the budget cap as well. So what's your take on these tight calendars and not to mention specifically the budget caps as well? And what sort of security level do these require? I mean, from staff securities to these motorhouses, car parts, even fuel and, well, everything related in F1. Yeah, so that's um, that's a very good, specific, but open-ended question. And I think I'm going to start with um, my, my thoughts on it was, you know, we've, we've seen the unpredictability that uh, the pandemic has kind of brought onto the logistics and supply chain, not only on F1, but just around the world, right? We've seen things get a little bit more expensive due to shipping and everything like that. Um, F1 does have logistics contracts in place and they have partners like DHL. Um, so theirs is a little bit, you know, a little bit more controlled, I would say. But they still, you know, everyone feels the pain, right? Fuel is expensive. So even if they have a contract with DHL, it still may cost more to fuel the planes and the ships, right? Um, but I think, you know, you brought up the regulation change in the cost cap first. Um, I think it does affect the, the team's abilities to produce um, upgrades. I think before that, you know, you had kind of the teams with more money like Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, they could make 10 of the same components with a little bit of differences and hope that one of them is the good one um, because they had the money to do it, right? There was no cost cap. Now you have to be a little bit more kind of, you know, thinking ahead. So you have to think, okay, we have these logistics issues one, like shipping something from the UK to Melbourne, if we wanted to bring an upgrade to Melbourne, like your example said, but then also it's going to cost a lot more money and we can lose if the upgrade doesn't really work. And if we rush the upgrade to get it in time for Melbourne, we might, you know, lose out on the potential for it. So it's a little bit, you know, interesting to see that. <clears throat> and then moving on from, you know, the... I answered a little bit of the budget cap, but I also think, you know, you, you see that there are teams 
like Ferrari being affected by the cost cap. You, we know that they, uh, instead of firing their employees, I think they relocated them into a shared workspace area with Haas. Um, you know, and, and, you know, they're not really Ferrari employees anymore, but they don't have to go home without a job either. But we're seeing that, you know, they had to make certain cuts like that in personnel. So you're not just seeing it like on the upgrade and the development side, you're seeing it on even personnel and people's livelihoods. Um, the, the, you know, the tight calendar, <clears throat> it definitely also adds to another layer of, of strategy, I think. And that's the beauty of it. I think it adds the challenge for the teams, but as a fan, it also makes that development race, especially in this season, a little bit more interesting, in my opinion, because it's not just, oh, what tires are they going to run? What, what, you know, arrow setting and what, what's their pit stop strategy? Now it's, what's their upgrade strategy, right? Like, what's the development looking like? So from that aspect, I think as a fan, it adds a little another variable that we can kind of compare the teams with. Um, and then security, I, I, I think this is sort of my area of expertise. It's interesting. I mean, security at this level of what F1 does, which is basically a traveling circus, as it's known as, it has layers. So every team that participates in F1, they, have, they are their own organizations internally, and they have their own employees, they have their own departments for HR and security and everything like that. So there's security teams that work with each team to safeguard the assets and the, you know, the, the intellectual property, right? Like things that they're sensitively working on to help make their car better. Um, kind of like from spying or corporate espionage or anything like that. And then you have, um, you know, the security from F1, right? So you have teams in F1 that sort of manage the logistics. How do we transport things? As you may know, sometimes when, uh, you know, if we fly overseas to another race, most planes have not just one team's parts. It has maybe two or three teams parts. So there's somebody that oversees that, you know, in close collaboration with, the, the teams as well. And then when you get to the circuit, there's another layer of security. Um, you know, each circuit has their own local uh, ownership and the businesses that run the circuit have their own employees, including security personnel. And they will work with the teams and F1 and local police and everything like that to make sure that the event can go on safely. And then it gets very specific, like, we, we see Lewis Hamilton, you know, I think he has a bodyguard with him uh, for a long time now. He's had one, and that's a driver choice, of course. They can have that. Um, and, you know, I think security, again, it's a very layered approach. It, re it requires a lot of communication um, between all of the layers to work. And we see that it can be something as specific as a bodyguard for a driver and securing the whole logistics operation and getting the cars and equipment and personnel somewhere on time and safely. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing to study. Oh, within the budget cap that is, right? I don't know exactly how the budget cap affects security. Obviously, you know, um, th there's some level of, of it, but I, I'm not exactly sure um, where the money would come for the security side of it. I'm, I haven't researched that 
you know, to be honest with you. But I think that, you know, obviously, if the people that work, you know, for the teams that, that are responsible for security, they are part of the, the, the payroll, right? So if Mercedes can afford to have 2,000 employees during a, a budget cap, they would have their security people within that 2,000 employee, you know, um, kind of pool of employees, so to speak. Um, I'm going to ask an extra question regarding security as well. A um, few years ago, there was this picture. Uh, one of the fans were carrying a part from uh, Mercedes vehicles from the garage, and the Red Bull uh, staff were stopping them. So there was a security issue regarding that as well that time. So do you think it's very secured and safe for the staff and the teams um, comparing to those years uh, back to now? Well, the reality of it is that an event such as F1 that is as big as it is, um, oftentimes you cannot, I mean, mean, whether it's F1 or whether it's my own house, I cannot guarantee 100%, you know, that everything can be safe and secure. So the reality of it is, is that, you know, it's, it's what steps do they take to allow people to come in and out. And I think that a risk that the, the F1 takes is that, you know, they allow sometimes people in the paddock and in the garage area, but that's a risk that they're willing to take because it adds to the experience of the sport. So risk is always sort of the inconvenience that you have to make the compromise for what you're willing to allow to happen to sort of not ruin the experience. You know, for example, if going into an F1 race was as tedious as going into, you know, like a a prison or a jail, it wouldn't really make it as enjoyable. So there's always a a flaw that we need to manage and mitigate. Um, And I think we saw, um, not even to your example, but even in uh, um, Melbourne, with Albon's late pit stop, you saw that there was some controversy with the people that were in the paddock that were being escorted, that they were already walking in the active pit lane. Um, you know, and that's that's a security issue within itself. Security doesn't necessarily mean uh, it has to be somebody that wants to do anything bad. It can be just ensuring the integrity, right, of the sport, right? If someone decided to run in front of Albon's car, that could have really affected his race. And the health and safety of the fan. So that's sort of when when you see things like that, you from a security perspective, you recognize them as a flaw or a risk, and then you work on ways to mitigate it within the grand scheme of the operation. Um, all right. So, um, see, I told you, you're the diplomat, and that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you believe uh, on the new spring turnovers with their new adjustments here and there, of course? And as a sub-question, could you talk us through the sprint results for 2022 and how bad Mercedes was due to a tire temperature and how good Ferrari, Red Bull and even McLaren, to be honest, performing? Yeah, so I think the the modifications to the sprint format to allow for more points, it can be good for the teams. However, I think, um, you know, I think the way we were marketed, the sprint layout and, the, and what we get, it's not necessarily lining up exactly the way that maybe fans were expecting. In my opinion, I think 
if if they wanted to really spice it up for a sprint, they could put you know the the, the Q1 people um, the way they finished one to five, and then Q2 five to ten, and then Q3 ten to twenty, in a in a sort of reverse grid, and it allows the slower cars to fight for some points, and then you know and then there's more entertainment if the faster cars are making their way through the field. So I think that that would be maybe a cool change that they could consider. Um, as far as the results of the sprint race in, you know, in Imola, um, yeah, Mercedes is obviously, I think due to their concept, they, they've been having real issues with tire temperature management and, and bringing the tires up to temperature. And I think we see that in all of their qualifyings, even, even up to Imola, they've always had to do an extra outlap. So they've had to do two outlaps before a push lap. Um, and so that's interesting, right? I think it's a, it's a, just the way their concept is right now. Um, but it was good to see, you know, obviously McLaren poking in there. I think aside from being our competition, I'm, I'm a George Russell and a, McLe- uh, a Mercedes fan, but I think, um, aside from being our competition, it just goes to show that the power unit might not really be the issue that people were kind of trying to start a rumor about uh, because McLaren's being pretty competitive as well, right? Um, Overall, though, the performance, I think we're also seeing, though, that this, um, the, the, the cars, I think, aside from the Red Bull and the Ferraris, they're really circuit specific as far as where they can extract the most performance at this point in time. I think it's a little bit early to figure out who's going to dominate until the end of the year, but I think uh, I'm very interested to see how Barcelona, um, you know, what, what every team, it's rumored that every team is bringing a big upgrade to Barcelona and uh, we'll be able to see how they, how they progressed since the preseason testing that they did um, earlier this year. But do you believe, do you think, in your opinion, it's the same reason why they're not bringing any upgrades uh, to Miami, but straight away to Barcelona? I mean, regarding the budget cap and stuff. Yeah, I think that plays a role. I think it's also that Miami is a new track for everybody. And I don't know, like Imola, you see that Mercedes, they didn't bring anything crazy, but they brought a little aero thing on the side of the car, maybe some other components, just like all the other teams. They didn't bring anything crazy, but you have sort of a benchmark of how the car would perform, even if it's a new regulation. I think for Miami, we might see some small little upgrades as well, maybe in more efficient temperature management or something like that, because Miami might be hotter uh, and more humid as a climate, but um, I, I don't think we're going to see the big upgrade. I think the cost cap plays a role, and I also think that just Barcelona being a familiar track that teams are familiar with, they did a preseason testing session there so they can really compare to see how far along they came. I think that that all plays a role, um, and it's a little bit shorter of a trip to ship everything uh, compared to overseas. Um. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so uh, Ferrari seems to have. We, we need to talk about these red boys. These red boys are going with reddish, <laughs> the reddish ever. Um, so Ferrari seems to have cracked the code almost with their cars, even though they have purposing issues. But they seems to have um, under control rather than um, comparing other teams. So um, under control, yeah. So uh, with setting purple purple sectors and well. 
they're doing very much, pretty much very great, and it's very visible because they are well, they are leading both the titles. Uh, though they had a bad outcome in Italy, that's due to the drivers and not the cars, unlike Mercedes. Uh, Red Bull is way quicker on the straights, so there's that as well. Uh, however, we can't uh, cut them off just because Red Bull is going faster or they've been winning, because even Red Bull had issues with their cars, uh, double DNF, and then again a DNF with Verstappen's car. So, um, how do you see Ferrari on the long run for this season? Looking at these drivers' mistakes, specifically Sainz, seems to have the worst luck with these races, even during qualifying. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think what we see is Ferrari has a fast and reliable car, but I think if you watched all of the sessions, um, especially in the race. I could see every car was porpoising to some extent. Even the Red Bull, you see it a little bit. It's not as visible, um, but it's it's a little bit more like short of a travel, whereas the Ferrari travels a lot more, but it's yeah. smoother. And then Mercedes is sort of in the middle where it's like, long, like it travels a lot and it's very rough. So it's a well, little there's bit a, of, there's a um, there's a word for most cities now. The everyone is calling mid cities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I think we still have a lot to see. Um, you know about really every team. I think Red Bull had the better uh, weekend, obviously results wise. I think they, when reliability is not a factor, I I I will go as far as to say maybe they have the more stable car overall. Um, Ferrari has good pace. Um, I think. Red Bull, like you said, has better straight line speed. So I think they kind of, it, it's really circuit dependent as to who's going to have the fastest car that weekend. But they're both obviously there in the top two fighting it out, right? Um, Ferrari, you brought up how you think, uh, what, what do I think about their season? I think they're in a, in a very unique spot because they haven't been here in a while, right? The yeah. car, I think, is beautiful. Um, it looks amazing. Um, they have really good drivers. I think I, you know, Sainz really needs to get himself going. When they get themselves going together, I think it'll be better for their constructor fight. But I also am curious to see how the relationship between the drivers will develop. You know, if Sainz is able to kind of recover from his really poor start to the season, if he's still in contention to, you know, fight for the championship by summer break, how will Ferrari handle that? On the other side, Ferrari hasn't brought any real major upgrades yet, you know, versus some other teams, they've brought little pieces here and there. And I think this is interesting because at one point you're going to have to bring upgrades and maybe not every upgrade has the result that you're intending. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle being at the front, being chased by Red Bull and I will even say Mercedes at some point in time off of just consistency alone, right? If they have a few more mistakes or a, a, a few bad weekends, if Mercedes brings the car up to speed, it's, it's very likely that the car, you know, uh, that Mercedes can catch up and fight as well. So they have to, this is my hot take, they cannot afford another weekend like Imola if they want to win the championship. Because if, if Red Bull has no reliability issues moving forward, they're going to be able to challenge. If Mercedes catches up with the pace, now there's another team in the mix. And so they really have to be careful with their upgrades 
their driver relationships and making the most out of the sessions without overdriving the cars. And I think, you know, we, we see that now in how the points difference that Charles had basically disappeared. Um, you know, that, that whole advantage that he had with the two Red Bulls doing a one-two. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure on them and I hope that they can handle it well. Um, it's a, a definitely new territory that they haven't been in for over a decade now. Um, all right. So speaking of upgrades, <clears throat> according to sources, Lawrence Stroll is keen to sell Aston Martin. And on the other hand, we have two brands from Volkswagen, Audi and Porsche, showing interest in entering F1 in 2026, if I'm not wrong. And this rumor of Aston Martin also says that will be targeting it probably but the same time Red Bull also had rumors flying around with those two brands so first question what do you think this actually is and may I add that it's also rumored that Porsche and Audi both wanted in and only Audi went through with it while Porsche had other plans as well and the second question is if Lawrence Stroll sells after Martin then do you think his son will have a chance uh, remaining in uh, F1, unlike Mazepin? Yes, yeah, so those are good questions. I think with, with uh, these rumors, I, I want to go ahead and say I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, you know, until that, that car, that manufacturer's name is on the car, uh, you know, I think rumors are kind of everywhere. It was rumored that Audi would be working with McLaren, and now it's Aston Martin that wants to, you know, sell. I, I, I will say I think this sport would benefit from two brand new teams without buying out pre-existing teams. I think if we could get 12 teams in, in the sport, 24 drivers, I think it would be a lot more exciting. Um, you know, and I think a lot of fans would like to see that because it would bring a lot of other talent to the to the sport as well, right? To Formula One, we see people like Oscar Piastri that they don't have a seat. Um, because of just how tight it is. So whatever happens, I don't know. Um, I I don't have the information yet. I think I don't. Uh, I think many may agree with me that I, when I say that, though, I, I would prefer if they came in as their own teams instead of buying uh, another team. If that makes sense. Um, if Aston Martin sells, I don't know. I don't know about Lawrence or Lance Stroll. I think he's. He's not a bad driver, in my opinion. I think he knows how to manage tires well. He fights. He he can be a little bit, like, ditzy for sometimes, you know, like, make some silly mistakes. But I think he's definitely better than Latifi when it comes to, uh, you know, kind of like a pay... <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, kind of like a pay driver scenario. I think we, we've seen a few races from Lance where he's performed really well, you know, like in Turkey, um, I think when he put it on pole, right, didn't he, uh, in 2020? Um, so, you know, if I remember correctly, I might be completely wrong, but I, I think we see that he has that, that little bit of talent that even as a pay driver, I think he would have a chance. I think um, it wouldn't be like you know, how the contract situation is now where we don't know and it's probably infinite years as long as Lauren Stroll is at the team. But I think he will get, you know, maybe a, a one or two year contract to see if he's still good enough with the circumstances 
before people would move in. I, I don't think he's a very controversial person like Mazepin. And like I said, I think if, if, if push comes to shove, I think Latifi would leave F1 before Stroll does. Um, I, I mean, when it, when it comes to push from Tushov, actually, he's been pushing the car to the walls all this time. So um, I think Mazepin was barely covering um, Latifi from getting that name. So, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It, it, it's so interesting about Latifi. Every time he has an incident, except for, you know, when him and, and Stroll came together in Melbourne, on the radio, what what scares me as a fan is he's yeah. always like, I don't know what happened. I don't know why the car went this way or that way. And I'm like, dude, you've been developing that car. You've been there longer than Albon. You should know what the car is like, you know, at le- or you should know at least what went wrong as a driver, right? You feel... Maybe you lost this part of the car, or maybe the tires weren't up to temperature. But every time he crashes, he's just like, I don't know what happened. And yeah. it, it, that concerns me for for the safety of other people and, and himself. You know, not just his uh, his ability to drive the car, but just you never know if if he doesn't know what the car, when the car will bite him. I think it, it, it's scary because he could crash into somebody else, or and he can have a crash. And yeah. that I don't know what happened. Yeah, and that's that's for me as a driver, you know, or I'm not a driver, but as a fan listening to the driver feedback, I'm just like, dude, how do you not know every time you crash what what went wrong? You have to know sometimes, like, you know, what you, maybe you braked too hard, or maybe you accelerated too quickly, or you know, you you understeered, oversteered something. But he's always like, oh guys, I'm okay, but I don't know what happened, you know, kind of a. Uh, yeah, it tells me a little bit that maybe he's not fit to be in, in the sport for a lot longer if he doesn't get better. True. I mean, um, there are many lining up. Just like you mentioned, Piastri, there are many. So without a seat, so we'd rather give a seat to a person who actually can drive and handle it than, you know, crashing. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mercedes uh, with with a crash, I mean, they've been crashing, not to the wall, but with the results. So let's talk about the Mercedes. So how can a team like Mercedes get it so wrong that even the team principal says he doesn't have the key? I mean, it's very normal in the motorsport, of course. And um, though it, this can be very hard for the fans, but it's a part of the cycle as well when it comes to sporting as well. Having said that, you never expect a team like Mercedes to have simple errors such as tire temperatures and pit stop timings. But do you think the pressure has got them or and overall your thoughts on the Mercedes issue? Yeah, I think, you know, we've been as fans of the sport and Mercedes and, and Lewis um, in particular, right? I think we've been a little bit... Um, spoiled by the dominant performance that they've had in the past eight years, right? I mean, they did really, really well. Yeah. I think, though, with this new regulation change and the cost cap, a little bit of kind of everything is getting to them. You know, it's not just one thing, right? It's a whole new car, and it's a car that you you have to develop with the long term ahead. So I don't think they 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 built a bad car on paper. 
right? Uh, I'm not very technical. I'm not an engineer, so I can't really tell you that aspect of it. But, you know, it's not like they came in and said, well, the car doesn't look good. You know, I think when, when we saw the preseason comments, they were saying, yeah, you know, the car looks looks good in the simulations and all the tests, right? So it wasn't like an intentional um, <laughs> falling back, right? But when they put the car on the track, that's when they came up with these issues with the porpoising. And, you know, nothing is more valuable than kind of seeing your product, your car on, you know, on the ground versus in a computer simulation or in a wind tunnel. So I think now that they found these problems, the engineers have to kind of reverse engineer and, and figure out what the solution is. While it's upsetting for the fans because we want to see Mercedes fight for the top, you know, for the championship and like we're so used to, I think we have to give them a little bit of time. I think they've, with, with the results that we've had from, you know, from, from these uh, past eight seasons, they've we, they've earned some patience on our behalf and i think that we need to give them you know let's see what happens in barcelona let's see what happens by the middle of the year and we'll figure out you know where we think this car's headed i think one thing that i've seen over these four races is that the car is pretty consistent all things considered like it doesn't really have a bad performance and a great performance from circuit to circuit, like maybe we've seen a little bit with um, McLaren in Bahrain versus Melbourne or Haas in, in Bahrain and Melbourne, right? Like in Bahrain, Haas was running very well and in Melbourne, they were kind of towards the back out of the points. So one thing that I'm happy about as a Mercedes fan is that the car seems to be pretty consistent with the problem that it has, which is a good thing because that means that the car, you, you know what to expect in the performance. With Imola, I think, um, you know, well, with the whole season so far, I think we've had some bad luck. Um, Lewis, with some of the setup issues at Imola, they had a, a different, you know, I think they pitted one lap too late. Um, and just the, the, the circumstances of it being a drying, wet track meant that Lewis was kind of stuck in that DRS train. He couldn't really use the whole track to make a move on Gasly. And that's, it's unfortunate because sometimes if you can't try to, you know, uh, mess with the, with the offensive and the defensive positions, you really can't go that far. Um, and you see that in sort of where he got stuck, but then you see George, he got very lucky at the start with uh, signs and Ricardo coming together and Botas hitting uh, Ricardo as well. He was able to make up a few places, but we were able to see what the pace was like for the Mercedes in that clean air, um, you know, in P4, P5, in that area that he was running. And it was doing pretty good pace. It was very similar to Lando Norris, right? Um, Bottas was a little bit faster, but he had, you know, a few issues with the race. But for me, the Mercedes is not great right now, but it's consistent, and that's not a bad thing because you know that it's predictable. We've had the bad luck with the qualifying in Imola, you know, uh, with signs crashing and then it started raining. Very tough to put in a fast lap on intermediates. It's never going to be better than a fast lap on soft tires. And we all know that, right? So it's just frustrating. I think it's a little bit of bad luck um, and a little bit of, you know, we're waiting 
to to put the upgrades on in Spain. So as a fan, you know, we get a little impatient and frustrated, but I think we have to put some faith in the team. You know, uh, Toto, Lewis, George, the engineers, they don't wake up every morning thinking, well, how can I make this car worse? I think they're going to wake up and say, how can I make it better? I know that we're in a bad spot. And as fans, we need to hold them accountable, but also keep them motivated uh, because we're not there at the factory. We're not building anything. So what we need to do is do the best of our job, which is as fans to support the team in this tough time. I think between Barcelona and in the middle of the season, we're going to see some excitement from Mercedes. All right. So let me ask you this question. Building a faster, faster car or a slow, reliable car making it faster? Uh, yes, that's the controversial quote from Mr. Horner at Melbourne, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> look, I, I think, you know, the reality of it is if you have a fast but unreliable car, you can still fight for race wins. If you have a slow, reliable car, you're going to be consistently you know, up there getting points, but you may not be able to fight in the championship. So I understand a little bit of what Horner said. I think Mercedes has been doing a good job of maximizing the points that they've been able to get so far with the car that we have. Uh, but I think, I don't think our car is slow. I think our car is just limited in performance by the problem that we have. Um, you know, I think we've seen that the power unit issue is not necessarily something you know that has to be a cause of concern i think the ferrari and the red bulls are marginally faster on pace but it's not like the mercedes power unit is completely slow you know we see that with mclaren and even the two aston martins getting double points um so you know i i think the reality of it is if you have a slow car it's better that it's reliable so you can get points if you have a fast car, you want it to maximize the speed. So I, I don't know. I'm in the middle. I, I like what Mercedes is doing. And I think them being able to get the points that they have so far, when this car comes up to speed, I think between Barcelona and, and middle of the season, it's going to be really exciting. And all the points that we've gotten so far will help us in, in the challenge if we, if we can challenge for the championship. All right, so uh, speaking of challenging championship, let's talk about Haas. And the question I'm going to ask you is not about the uh, car, because we've seen how the car is performing, but about the drivers. K-Mag is back, and he's on the top level. And Mick Schumacher is being always with the Haas car, but still not quite up to that level. So what's the difference? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. Um I think Mick maybe got a little shaken by K-Mag coming back. I think any driver will, if no offense, but your other driver, your teammate was Mazepin, who talent-wise doesn't belong in F1, no matter what your political or geopolitical beliefs are. He's just not that good. Yeah. Um, but And so I think when you have a driver that matches you or outperforms you, it's going to rattle you a little bit. You know, you're going to, you're going to start questioning your own abilities, but I also think it's a new regulation year. And what we've come to see from Mick Schumacher is that he usually takes a year to get used to a car. And then in the second year, he does a lot better. 
this is technically his second year in F1, so you would expect that he does a lot better, but then this is the first year of a new car. So it might take him this year to get used to it a little bit, and then maybe we'll see a little bit more of him in 2023. Now, you know, I think he just needs to... His competition is just to provide consistent results and maximize performance of that car. I, I think that K-Mag is going to outperform him because K-Mag has a lot more experience than him. So he needs to just be realistic and just say, hey, every weekend I'm going in and I'm going to do the best that I can do. And if I finish ahead of K-Mag, then so be it. If I finish behind him, then so be it. I'm learning. And I think that that's the mentality he needs to have. Uh, anything else might affect his ability to race consistently, and that might affect his future in the sport. That's the mentality George Russell has, obviously, because he's been baiting by these F1 pundits uh, from Sky for various questions, but the guy is very good with his PR. No wonder he's called PR63. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's very funny. I'm a George Russell fan um, because I've followed him since he entered F1. And I think, like, I love Lewis. And Lewis is the greatest of all time. But I haven't watched Lewis since 2007 or when he entered F1. So I think I, I am a Lewis fan, but I'm not, like, a full Lewis fan for that reason. I, I think you get what I'm trying to say, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Some fans... I, it's, it's okay, I'm Everyone has a fan, um, has yeah. a favorite driver. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be Louise, obviously. <laughs> no, of course. Like, what I'm saying is I'm a Mercedes and a Lewis fan, but I've followed George since yeah. he entered F1. And there's something about following a driver kind of from the start of their career, which yeah. I think why a lot of Lewis fans love Lewis so much, because a lot of them followed him from 2007 until yeah. now. And so that's the, the passion that the fans have. And and I respect Lewis. I love Lewis. But my guy is George just because I've, you know, I followed him since he entered the sport. And yeah, George and is doing... And he's very talented as well, I gotta say. I mean, yeah, he has... Look, this is my hot take. I think that I rate him a little bit better than Charles Leclerc. And I know that that sounds very controversial because he's not in a in the same car or in the same position as Charles, but he's done the same thing Charles has done in his junior career, uh, except I would argue in F2, he won in his rookie season with a more competitive grid. He had Albon, Lando, a few other drivers there. You know, So I think that's why I rate George a little bit higher on, on talent. Now they've never been neck to neck in the same machinery, so we'll see when they if Mercedes gives them a car. I, I'd like to see how he can fight with the top guys, but yeah, his talent is there. But I also think his maturity, um, and I think you can see that right. The nickname PR sixty three. I don't think it's because he's a you know a, a PR robot. I think it's just because he knows how to maturely answer something or how to avoid controversy in a question right you see that kind of from the beginning and even his story right he like has the powerpoint presentations and that's how he got onto the williams team right and everything like that so i i see george for his age as a very forward thinking future thinking um driver and you know like drivers like lando he's a little bit more immature in my opinion you know i mean he's a great energy for the for the for the sport he's very funny but i also think he's a little bit more immature than george and that's why i i tend to lean towards following george i think he's 
very diplomatic, <laughs> pun intended, off the track. And he's a very competitive driver, um, you know, on the track. And he's also, you know, I, I really don't listen to the pundits, I'll be honest with you. Uh, the pundits are like a feather. They they blow with the wind, right? If the wind goes one way, they're going that way. If the wind goes the other, they're telling you, you know, how good or bad this person is. So, you know, pundits are fun, but you can't, you can't really live in the headlines. I think uh, they're trying to make a lot of drama between George and Lewis that doesn't exist. I think that it's a very different dynamic that uh, Mercedes has with the, with Lewis and George. I think the age difference is one big, big uh, benefit to that because what you'll see is I think when drivers are similar generation or similar age as teammates, they tend to get more reckless in competition with each other. And F1 is a team sport first and a driver sport second, right? The money comes from the team result. So the teams never want to have crazy fire battles between their teammates. And I think with Lewis and George, it's sort of like a master and apprentice relationship, right? George has looked up to Lewis when he was a kid. Now they're teammates. And I think that they're going to work very well together. And when that Mercedes comes around, uh, they are the best driver pairing on the grid, bar none. You have a, a Charles Leclerc level talent in George Russell, and then you have the greatest of all time in Lewis Hamilton. No other team has that. And I think that's what's going to make them so dangerous when that car comes together. The fairy tale. I hope so, right? Uh, <laughs> if, look, I, I, I don't really... I want, the, I want them to be able to fight at the front, even if they don't win. I want them to be there on pace. And I think if Mercedes gives us a car that can at least fight for wins this season, even if they don't win, you know, I, I'd love to see Lewis get his eighth. I'd love to see Mercedes get another constructor championship. But even if we can't do that, at least to be fighting for wins, to see the talent and the skill on display that our, that our two drivers bring, I think it will be very, very good for the sport. And there's always a next time. Of course, but you know we we want to do the best um, with with what we have in the in the current time. So Mercedes, I don't think they're going to give up that that easily. I think they're going to try to get this car settled this year. And remember, um, next year the car is not going to be completely different. It's going to be an evolution of the, this current car. So it's going to be tough for them to say, well, we're going to focus on next year's car if they still have problems with this year's car. So they're going to work on it. And I'd love to see uh, Lewis and George up there fighting. And I think they make great teammates. They have a good relationship. And, you know, we've seen it, right? They go surfing together and working out together in the gym. I don't think we see that from any other team, at least on social media. So it's good to see that. All right. So speaking of age graph, um... <laughs> I'm stammering. I don't know why. <laughs> so, um, speaking of age gap, how far has this sport come if you look back to the 80s, 90s to modern day 2022? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And I think what we can see is just the reach and engagement of the sport so far. Um, we live in a social media generation and the world is smaller than it ever was as far as, I mean, look at, you know, we're talking a very, very many hours apart 
right? So the beauty of it is that that's the, you know, everyone is reaching out, engaging with the sport, kind of forming communities and, and talking about F1. We obviously still have a lot of politics in the sport. We have a lot of controversies and maybe even some conspiracies. And I don't think that will ever go away, right? I mean, F1 is F1 at the end of the day. But um, you know, seeing the sport kind of become more global, um, reaching more people, it's very inspiring to me. Um, you know, F1 isn't perfect. It does have a lot of ways to go to earn maybe some trust from some fans, especially if you look at last season, I think... Even if you were a fan of, you know, Max and Red Bull, the way that things happened last season, you have to think, well, what if what if my driver and my team was in, you know, switch the roles? And so I think a lot of fans, if you look on Twitter and, and just in social media in general, um, you'll see obviously Lewis fans and Max fans kind of going at war with each other, but you'll see other fans that say, hey, it was kind of weird what happened because that could have happened to my driver. That could have happened to my team. And we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again, you know, sort of controversy and decisions the way that they happened. Right. So the sport has a lot of, you know, a little bit to go to earn our trust um, or, or some fans trust in, in the sport again, but with the new fan base, with everything going digital, I think what you're going to see is that the sport can't really continue to do things the way it used to do them. Now there's way more accountability because there's way more transparency. You're bringing in fans from DTS, social media, Netflix, and all of these fans are engaging with the sport versus before when it used to be mostly like rich white dudes watching the sport and paying, you know, for the sport. So now it's a lot more of a diverse audience base from a lot of different social economic backgrounds and there's going to be a lot more you know desire to keep them accountable and i think that that's going to be that's going to benefit the sport moving on all right so speaking of rich white dudes and diversity um yes this sport used to be a white sport for the rich millionaires billionaires but uh I mean, in the world, we have racism issues in the sport. Also, there have been racism issues and in F1 also have been racism issues, even from the fans. We used to uh, see Louis getting a lot of racial abuse during his early stages until today. And even in Imola, apparently, suddenly, actually, that was shocking for me um, to see a big poster uh, of a black kid crying over. So that, uh, that stirred up the F1 Twitter as well. So my question to you is, looking back, the racism and the political issues that the sport had, do you think it has been controlled over the years or has it been worse? It, it's tough to say, really. I mean, you know, I don't know about that picture. I, I haven't been able to figure out whether it's real or not. If it's real, it's just, you know, very very classless. I think, you know, and maybe this is just my personality, but when you see something that's wrong, no matter what the circumstance is, instinctually deep down inside, you know that that's wrong and you need to call it out if it's wrong. Um, you know, and I think maybe the, the competition makes some drivers kind of 
numb to that and maybe they don't they don't find that that place within themselves to call out things that are wrong um i think the sport has done well with it seems to be lewis leading the the campaign for you know we race as one and um and racism and, and all of those campaigns which were you know awesome to see on display but i think the sport also you know, actions speak louder than words. And ultimately, this was a, a campaign, um, but they need to show that they're doing more than just, you know, putting a hashtag before the race. You know what I mean? So um, you know, that's why I'm so excited to see, you know, I don't want to talk about Lewis retiring, but when he retires, he's so powerful within the sport. He's made such an influence in the sport. I think if he ever comes back to F1 in some way, he will definitely do it in a way to make, you know, maybe underprivileged individuals that have never, would have never had a chance to be a mechanic or to be an engineer or to be a driver. I think he will use his influence and his wealth that he's acquired to maybe create opportunities for those, you know, for people like that. And it makes me happy because I think, we have we still have a long way to go you know uh, there's still it still seems to be like a good old boy at uh, club at the top but we're like i said before we're in a digital media generation where everything is becoming more transparent and people organizations um and sports leagues are going to have to show you know more than just words right we have to see the actions and I think it's exciting to see kind of what teams are doing. I think um, Mercedes, I, I know more from Mercedes because I watch the videos and, the, you know, everything. And they do a good job of bringing a lot of uh, underprivileged individuals into STEM programs and internships and stuff like that. And I think that's, you know, it can only go better from here, from where we're at. But do you think... If this incident in Abu Dhabi happened during the 80s and 90s, the result would have been different. I mean, even there won't be a statement or an addressing about it. You know, with Abu Dhabi, it's so interesting because I think that F1 and the FIA kind of made it worse by dragging it on for so long. I think if they no, would have just made it... Yeah, if they would have just made a statement and gotten it over with, people would have gotten their closure and, exactly. you know, and, and moved on. And I think the reality of it is, you know, all they had to say was, hey, F1 is a sport in pursuit of perfection. And last year and in this race, we weren't perfect. And we're going to make sure that we look into what we've done, um, good, bad and ugly, and make sure that the bad and the ugly don't make their way up. In, in any decision again that's all they had to say and I think people would respect that they've acknowledged that but it, it seems like sometimes when they don't want to acknowledge like look we are humans we all have you know prejudices and biases from the way that we were we from the environment that we grew up in so nobody's perfect right and I think the FIA thinks it has to be perfect and in that thinking you have to be perfect and you can never make a mistake, it ends up making you imperfect in the eyes of the fans. Uh, so it's kind of a paradox, right? So they should have just come out with it and said, hey, you know, this is, and, and even so, you know, you can say, hey, we've never had in, in more than four decades, 
two drivers tied on points in the final race. We had a lot of pressure from this. You know, we tried to make the race exciting and enjoyable for everybody and competitive, and we, we missed the mark. And we apologize for that. We're going to look into it, and we're going to do better next time. And I think even if you say something like that, not everybody will agree with it necessarily, but you're still going to be able to put closure on this chapter instead of bringing it into, you know, this season, which is what they did. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate. All right. So um, speaking of imperfections and perfections, I'll ask you a question like this. If, uh, this is totally outside the current uh, Formula One situation. <clears throat> okay, here we go. <laughs> if you get a chance to create a team and gives you the benefit of recruiting drivers from the golden days, um, golden days to modern days as well, then whom would you choose as your draw two drivers and why? Well, <clears throat> my dad, um, he did such a good job to show me. Um, Senna's career and just his uh, his talent. I really, really think that Senna had some some God given sixth sense of talent just by the way he drives. I think if you look at videos, he would he, in the mid middle of the turns he would you know keep hitting the accelerator just to keep the the turbo spinning you know in the car and it, you just look at it and it's it's just crazy you know he had his. He, he had his own driving style that I don't think anyone ever replicated. So I'd have to say Senna, you know, I, I was not alive. You know, I, I was born the same year that he died. So, you know, I never got to see him race live. Um, but, uh, you know, Senna, and then I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know many other golden day drivers, you know, I'm making myself look a little bit like a fool right now. So I, I think I'd say maybe Senna, and, and I'd have to say my driver now, George. And I'd love to see the difference in their in their driving styles from, from old to new. That would be actually a quite, quite, a, quite a testing race, to be honest. I mean, yeah. both, of them have, yeah, both of them have their own styles, uh, their own experience. And from a person like Senna, a lot can be learned, a lot. And it's very unfortunate whatever ha what happened to him, to be honest. And it's heartbreaking. But uh, since the uh, sport has given a lot of thoughts in, then for the safety side, um, we had an halo to save, save Luis's head. So Exactly. That, yeah, that, that's a good thing. Um, speaking of Senna and uh, the Golden Age, um, do you think the drivers... Um, had more knowledge those days than these days? Well, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I think there was that one famous question, right, that uh, was asked in the press conference with the buttons on the steering wheel. Um, look, I think every, every generation of Formula One driver and car, um, it's unique to its own generation. I, I think if you look at basketball, right, um, like Michael Jordan and Kobe, they're they're both probably tied for the greatest of all times, but they're just generations apart. They, you know, and, and uh, Michael Jordan and LeBron, right? So it's tough to say. I think when Senna drove, 
you know, the cars were more reliant on mechanical grip from the tires. So <clears throat> it was a different way of driving a car than, say, you know, with more downforce reliant. But I think both bring very technical expertise and, and it, it challenges the talent, right? So I, I don't know, you know, I don't have a conclusive statement. I think just there there were some ways, you know, that the older cars were harder to drive. And there are some ways that if you put, you know, Alan Prost or someone in, in a modern car, they would have a hard time, you know, because you have to keep the car in the right window for, for balance, aero, you know, uh, battery deployment. So it's a lot, you know, it might not be, it, you're doing less of one thing, but more of another that maybe the drivers in the golden age didn't do. You know, and, and so it's hard. I think it's it's fairly balanced. I think the machinery that we have today is so technologically advanced. It's it's quite amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I can't give you a conclusive answer, I'm afraid. But do you think it was easier to drive a car those days than these days? When it hmm. comes to technology, obviously. Yeah. I, I will go and say, I think it might have been just mechanically harder to drive a car back in those days, just from a, like, the way that I see it is the down, there was very little downforce, right? So you had to rely on finding the grip in the road, and it would, it would take a little bit more out of a driver to know where the grip is. Um, and I think Senna was really good at that. That's why... You know, we all talk about Senna. We see him dancing with the car, trying to find grip on the road. So I think from a just driving, like a, like a mental, physical demand, I think it might have been back in the day. But I think the modern, well, physically demanding, I would say, back in the day, mod, uh, mentally demanding, I think modern, because you have to focus on so much with the car now making sure that the right setting is on and all that, that I think you're more, it, it's a different challenge to focus on the car, on the road, on the car, on the road, you know, like looking up, down, up, down, and knowing what button does what, you know, and it's a little bit more of a, a brain challenge. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes totally sense, actually. <laughs> I agree on that uh, question. When I was asking the question, I didn't have any thoughts on that. But once you said that, I actually 1000% agree mentally this year, this time and physically that time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you nailed me that. <laughs> um, so I'm going to wrap up the episode with this last question to you. Your predictions for Miami GP. Yeah, I think I'm very excited for Miami. I, I grew up in South Florida, um, spent most of my childhood there. And uh, I'm actually going to be in Miami for the race weekend, but I'm not going to the race. Um, I, almost, be... I, I almost um, screamed saying, yoo-hoo, but then you were saying, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, there are a few tickets, but there's, they're a little bit too expensive. And I think... Um, you know, I think it's, I, I want to see how the race, how the first race goes before, you know, seeing whether it's worth the money or not. So there's a lot of people in Miami that this is pocket change for them and they don't care if it's a good or a bad event, but for other people that save up a lot of money to go, you know, it would be unfortunate yeah. if they, if they went 
and it wasn't as exciting or something like that. So I think maybe next year. Um, what I will say is this, uh, as far as the GP goes, um, I think there are some minor upgrades by everybody that's going to be brought, nothing crazy. Uh, I've read a few articles about the type of asphalt being used on the track surface. It's meant to induce more, um, I think, more degradation. And it's a new track surface and a new layout. So it'll be interesting to see how each team's car goes around the circuit, right? We have no no previous data, even from the past generation of cars. Um, the climate in Miami is very interesting. There's a lot of heat and humidity and a lot of unpredictable rain. It comes you know, comes randomly on a very sunny day. You see some very dark clouds. It rains for 40 minutes and then it goes away. So I, there's no, a very... Yeah, it's going to be... If that happens during the race weekend, I think it's going to be kind of crazy. Um, you know, I think it'll be more exciting for the fans. Uh, at least the ones watching <laughs> on TV, maybe, and not being in the rain in the stands. Um, but yeah, so the the weather, the humidity, I think it's going to be exciting, though. I, I hope it becomes a little bit more affordable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know... You know, I want to say my team is going to have some, some luck. I want Mercedes to do really well at Miami. But the truth is, we don't know. Um, it, it looks looks like a good track, though. With a, I think it has some fairly uh, long multiple straights in it um, or periods of just outright pace. So we might get hurt by that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we'll see where it goes. I'm excited just to just to see how the city takes in the GP and uh, what, what it brings. So do you think Red Bull will win this time or Ferrari? Well, for me, the question is, with the, with the heat and the humidity, I have to say it might affect some teams with maybe some cooling and temperature issues. Mm -hmm. And if that, if that becomes an issue with reliability, then you know my bet would be maybe Ferrari. Um, because they've been more reliable throughout all all sorts. Yeah, because Red Bull doesn't weather. go with reliability. Yeah, but momentum is very powerful in F1, and Red Bull is they have a lot of good momentum from the result in Imola, right? A one-two, yeah. they they pretty much dominated the weekend. So, you know, if momentum is very powerful, Red Bulls will be very strong. If reliability plays a role, I think Ferrari is going to be the better car. Hopefully that they don't make as many mistakes with the drivers this time around. Alrighty, so we're gonna wrap up this episode with F1 Diplomat, but uh, I'll be inviting him again for an episode with Denzel because mm, I think Denzel is in the dreamland by now. <laughs> yeah, he's probably <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> Denzel might be awake afterwards <laughs> and we can give him the news. So, um, thank you so much for joining Diplo. Um, it's such an honor to talk to you and get this all information from a fans perspective especially and the knowledge that you hold that is very well, important yeah thanks for having me it was a real pleasure it was good to be on here and you know this is the beauty of of you know f1 and what it does is it brings people together 
and we're talking about things and we're just having a good time. So I look forward to it, you know, whether it's on another episode or whether it's across Twitter or social media, you know, I'm here to have a good time and, and hopefully everyone else is too. All right. So um, tell us how to find you on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, I have to actually look it up. I'm at the F1 diplomat. So the F1 diplomat. Anyone can follow you and engage with you. And trust me, the guy has a good knowledge and the guy has specific opinions that's going to beat your arguments. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, my, my goal is always to try to facilitate healthy conversation, even if I disagree with somebody. And even if I agree with somebody, I will always try to bring the other perspective in, even if it's not what I believe, just so we can, you know, get every bit of the conversation going. On Twitter, I have a few friends. We all do Twitter spaces every now and then. Uh, Twitter spaces are kind of like, if you know what Clubhouse is or... Um, just it's a it's an area it's like a room where we can have people up to 10 speakers and we all can talk about a specific topic and our spaces i think we try to avoid you know toxicity and anything like that we try to keep it neutral we have mercedes fans red bull fans ferrari fans mclaren fans and we all kind of just talk we banter a little bit you know we all make jokes and we have a good time but we don't, you know, we don't attack anybody or, or each other. That's what exact. That's exactly what we want as well. So um, even with the podcast, we've uh, invited Ferraris, um, Red Bull fans, McLaren fans who used to work uh, for McLaren, Red Bull as well. So uh, hoping to uh, invite a lot of people in the future episodes as well, because this is a, a space... Uh, uh, which is a very safe space for any fan to come and um, let their thoughts on and for the knowledgeable ones to share their knowledge as well. So uh, thank you so much again for joining us today, Tipo. I know you're very busy. And to be honest, this guy is doing this episode very late, <laughs> even though it's very early in the morning for us. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. And hope this week will be amazing for you and for the whole teams as well in F1 and to see an exciting race, unlike Imola, <laughs> on, uh, in Miami. <laughs> so thanks so much for joining. And you guys can give us your thoughts and feedback on Twitter as well. You can follow uh, me on Twitter and uh, Denzel as well. So mine goes as Donna and... Uh, AMG Dance, so you guys can follow us on Twitter and give us your feedbacks and thoughts. And if you want to join, just let us know as well. And do follow F1 Diplomat on Twitter for the amazing knowledge and his opinions as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, then that's it from me today. As in, I'm tomorrow again. As Denzel is not here, but we will be coming with another episode with Denzel and I, where we ask 25 freaking random questions. So stay tuned and, like Denzel says, peace.